So today we are, we're at the halfway point of our sermon series, which has been entitled, I Am Jesus. And for the last seven weeks, we have been looking at the, the seven I Am statements that Jesus uh, makes in the Gospel of John. And so this week, we're, we're switching gears because now we're moving on to what have been called the seven signs of John's Gospel. And so for the, this week and the following weeks, we're going to be looking at each of these signs that Jesus performs. Because one of the unique things about John's gospel is that he doesn't call the supernatural works of Jesus miracles. He calls them signs because they are supernatural acts that point towards Jesus' identity as the Son of God, as the Messiah. In fact, chapters 2 to 12 of the Gospel of John are often called the book of signs because it's within those chapters that these signs happen. And so today we find the first of Jesus' signs, and this sign is found at a wedding. Now, in my uh, many years as a professional musician, I have played at more weddings than you would ever possibly want to go to. Uh, Probably easily 500 plus weddings, you know, maybe closer to 1,000 actually if I probably counted them all. Every weekend playing playing weddings. And... um, you know, weddings, they're interesting events, aren't they? We probably all of us have been to a wedding or two in our lifetime. And, uh, you know, they're fascinating events. They're, they're prime people-watching events, aren't they? You get a little sampling of, of human nature and how we act in certain circumstances. And um, inevitably, often what would happen at, at these weddings when I was playing in the band is quite often I would be designated the MC. The one doing the announcements because people wanted to hear my sophisticated British uh, tone. So, of course, I was delegated as that one. Um, Just for the record, back in England, my accent isn't considered posh. It'd be like being from Alabama or something from around here. But they liked me doing the MC, and and so I would inevitably be the one doing the announcing and, uh, you know... uh, announcing the bridal party, things like that. Uh, you know, most of the time it was a lot of fun, uh, except when I mispronounced the uh, bride of the mother's name and things like that. Um, but most of the time, things went off without any issues. But in- invariably, one part of the night I would always get stick for. Was I was always the harbinger of doom. was when I would get the... Be play, in the middle, playing a song, you know, you're, you're, you're playing a little bit of like, you know, celebration, cooling the gang or something, and the, uh, the uh, manager of the, uh, the floor leans over and says, can you announce last call at the bar, please? It's not going to go well. <laughs> but that was, of course, my job, to announce to folks, okay, last call at the bar, you know, bar's closing in 10 minutes. And invariably what would happen is, Boo, you know, and all this kind of, we get a lot of pushback, people not too happy. I'd be like, don't kill the messenger, I'm just the messenger. But essentially, the reason that was unpopular, right, was because my announcement was signaling to the party that there's no more wine, there's no more beer. At least not at this party. You don't have to go home, but you can't stay here. But that was the announcement, Yeah? The taps are being turned off. There's no more wine. And when we look here at this wedding in Cana that Jesus and his disciples and his family are at, they're in a similar problem. But the only problem here is that the taps being turned off is not a deliberate thing. This is not 
This is not your time's up, what you've paid for, we're done. No, they've run out of wine in the middle of the celebration. And that's a problem. That's a, that's a big problem. You know, that's, that happens at weddings today. Once in a while, right? They, they, they misjudge things and they run out of, maybe they run out of food or they run out of drink too early in the night. And when that happens, you know what happens? Well, people get a little, whatever, but then people get over it. They'll get a Sprite, whatever. Not a big deal. In Jesus' time, if you run out of wine in the middle of a wedding, that was serious stuff. You could, families actually sued one another over that. They took each other to court over that. That's, that's how big of a deal it was. And on top of that, their culture, first century Judea, was very much a culture of shame and honor. So this was, this was a shameful thing to run out of wine in the middle of the celebration. This is a kind of thing that they would talk about for the rest of your life. Yeah? You'd have been married 50 years. Well, you remember your, oh, yeah, we remember your wedding. That's the one where we ran out of wine, right? So this is a big deal. It's a big deal. But you know what's interesting here is, is why would Mary approach Jesus about this? I mean, Jesus, Jesus is just a guest. He's at, he's at the, the, the wedding like everybody else to celebrate, to enjoy the celebrations. He's with his disciples, his friends. He's, with, he's there with his family. Why, why would Mary come to Jesus about this? He's just a regular guest. I mean, <laughs> what's he going to do? Turn water into wine? Perhaps Mary coming to Jesus, perhaps there's a little hint here that she'd seen some of his power before. I mean, think about it. Mary lived with Jesus day in, day out. Father, I mean, sorry, mother and son. Who knows what she saw Jesus do as he was growing up, as he was a teenager and an adolescent and a young adult. So perhaps Mary knew that Jesus could do something about this if he so chose. So she comes to Jesus and she says, they've run out of wine. And Jesus' reply is, woman, why do you involve me? My time has not yet come. Now at first, first reading to a lot of us, that, that sounds a bit like Jesus kind of being rude to his mother, doesn't it? Do you read, anybody else read that like that? You know, you sort of read it with this tone of like, woman, why do you involve me? My time has not come. The phrase in the Greek there, it actually means what to me to you. So really what Jesus is saying is he's saying, what, what's that to you and me? They've run out of wine. Okay, what, what's that to us? But that term when he says woman, despite how it, it sounds to our ears, is actually, it's not a disrespectful term at all. It was actually a typical informal way of address back in Jesus' day. There's nothing rude about it. It's actually a very just informal way of talking. It's almost a sign of closeness that you can talk to somebody informally like that. Nothing offensive about it. And you know, there's actually an important lesson to be learned for us here in how we read and approach Scripture. And that's that when we read Scripture, we always have to understand it in its context, in its time. When it was written, what were the cultural norms back then? It's so important we do that instead of imposing our 21st century sensibilities onto the text. 
that will lead to misunderstanding, misinterpretation, and ultimately to, to mistakes about how we view God and how we view Jesus. But you know, it's, it's a lesson also that we can, we can use and, and, and learn for, for how we approach all history. Because it is, it's important to understand history in its context and in its time. Otherwise, it can lead to ignorant assumptions and conclusions based on our very narrow-minded 21st century view of things. You know, fortunately, we're, we're seeing this happen a lot in our society today, in our culture today. We're seeing this sort of fragile 21st century way of looking at things and people being offended by art and literature from the past. Folks, that's dangerous. That's ignorant. It's what leads to censorship, and it's narrow-minded. It's what led to the Harvard professor and philosopher in the early 1900s, George Santayana, famously saying, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. We cannot and we should not cancel the parts of history that we find disagreeable and offensive. Because if we do that, how will we learn from those events? You know, if we open up that Pandora's box, and I think unfortunately we already have, we have to ask how long do you think it'll be before the mob comes after the Bible? If we understand Jesus' response properly, if we understand the cultural context and we understand the words that Jesus used when he said, woman, what is that to you and I? We can understand that he's being informal with his mom. He's being colloquial. He's being actually close to his mom. Nothing more, nothing less. But why did Jesus respond this way, though? Why, Why did he respond that way? Well, there could have been a number of reasons, and um, this is a little bit of imaginative speculation, but I think all of these things are possibilities as to why Jesus responded this way. First of all, perhaps Jesus is asking his mother to consider, is this how he should be using his power? Remember, at this point, Jesus' ministry hasn't really started. Okay, he's, he's still somewhat of an unknown quantity, and he's with his disciples at this, um, at this, uh, this uh, wedding. Right? Disciples, remember, really, his friends. And maybe he's saying, you know, he's sort of indicating to his mom, is this, is this how you want me to kind of get the show rolling with who I am? I'm going to turn some water into wine? Maybe Jesus was also establishing that he operates on the timetable of his heavenly father and not the timetable of his earthly mother. You know, there's, there's an earthly timing and a divine timing. And there's our timing and there's God's timing. And often those timings don't coincide at the same time. You know, we have an idea of when we want something being done and God has an idea of when it should be done or should not be done at all. You know, if Sarah and I had had our way, uh, we'd have had kids about 10 years ago. That's what we wanted in our human wisdom. That's what we thought was best for us. We wanted kids 10 years ago, and we went through eight-plus painful years of infertility. 
of regular disappointments, of getting to the point where we had resigned ourselves to the fact that we were probably never going to be able to have our own biological children. We'd started the adoption process. We were looking at adopting instead. And then eight years onwards, after we had thought it was the best time to have children, God blessed us with an amazing miracle. He blessed us with Dove. But that was God's timing. If, you'd, if we had a playbook of our lives and, and it said, when do you want children? It would have not been on the same timetable as God's timetable. But we realize with hindsight now that this was the perfect age for us to have kids. We'd have been horrible parents 10 years ago. There's God's timetable and there's our timetable. And maybe Jesus is saying to Mary, not yet. You know, you see, Mary doesn't realize by asking this request of Jesus, she doesn't realize what the cost is going to be to Jesus. Because by performing this miracle that he is about to do, changing the water into wine, what Jesus does is he starts down the road to his death on the cross. His public ministry would begin and the clock would begin. The countdown would begin to Calvary, to the cross. You see, when Jesus says, my time has not yet come, which is also, really means my hour has not yet come. There's, there's a theme going on here in John's gospel. Jesus says this a lot, my time has not yet come. Or he says, my time has come. And perhaps Jesus asking Mary what this has to do with them was to stir her to deeper faith. You know, often the sign of a, of a mature Christian versus an immature Christian is in their response to prayers that seem to go unanswered. Do we, do we book at the first disappointment or lack of a clear answer from God? Or do you dig in? Do you press in deeper? Do you seek God all the harder? That's when our faith really shines. When God doesn't answer everything we ask for, when life isn't going the way we want it to, when things are not all wonderful and hunky-dory, do we dig in or do we withdraw? Do we retreat from God? And herein is why, is why Mary's response to Jesus is, is so remarkable. Because instead of pushing back at her son, right, like uh, many a mother would, you know, being at the wine. Jesus, they run out of wine. Are you going to do something about it or what? Come on, why don't you do something? You know, come on, you know how to do it. Mary doesn't do any of that, does she? Instead, she gives one of the simplest and most profound pieces of instruction and advice found anywhere in Scripture. It's so simple. It's so profound. It's so important that if we actually followed this instruction, our lives would look completely different. What does Mary say? She says, do whatever he tells you. Do whatever he tells you. Five simple words. But can, you, can you imagine if we were to truly follow that simple yet profound prescription from Mary? Do whatever he tells you. How different would our lives look? How different would our faith look? How transformed would we truly be? What does Jesus say in, 
John chapter 14, verse 15, he says, If you love me, keep my commands. It's a sign of how much we love him. Do we keep his commands? He goes on in the same chapter, verse 14, sorry, chapter 14, but verses 23 and 24, Jesus says, Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them and we will come to them and make our home with them. Anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. So there's a real clear, obvious sign of whether we love Jesus or we don't love Jesus. It's whether do you obey his teachings or don't you? It's really simple. I know it's harder than it sounds. But that's what it comes down to. Do whatever he tells you. Now, despite the conversation that Jesus has with his mom, Jesus, he does act. He does act. And we're told that nearby there are six stone water jars and that they are used for Jewish ceremonial washing. Now, these are, these are big jars. They're like 20 to 30 gallons per jar. And Jesus tells the servants, he says, go and fill them to the brim with water. And as we read, when some of the water is drawn and taken to the master of the banquet, the water has been miraculously turned into wine. And the master of the banquet is, is just blown away by the quality of this, of this wine. You know, this is not some... Uh, Sutter Home four pack of, of wine. You know, this is, this is good, amazing, top shelf wine. And he's amazed by this. He pulls the bridegroom aside and he says, You know, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you've saved the best till now. So, what's going on here? I mean, Jesus, he's just produced a lot of wine. We're talking 120 to 180 gallons of serious quality wine. And it sounds already like quite a few people have already put quite a, quite a bit away already. Well, it's important to remember, I, I sort of touched on this last week in the sermon, that, that wine back in Jesus' day, it was frequently drunk. But it was a necessity rather than a luxury. Because of the scarcity of drinking water. So it was very much diluted. It was watered down. It's not the sort of same strength that we have today. But you know, more than that, wine has important significance in the Bible. An abundance of wine in the Old Testament was a symbol of God's blessing. If we look at Genesis chapter 27, verse 28, Isaac's blessing over Jacob is that God Give you heaven's dew and earth's richness, an abundance of grain and new wine. It was a sign of blessing of God's abundance, God's extravagance. But on the flip side, a lack of wine could also be seen as a curse, a covenant curse. Joel chapter 1 verse 10 says, The fields are ruined, the ground is dried up, the grain is destroyed, and new wine is dried up. So a lack of it could be seen as God's judgment and curse. But an abundance of wine, it was also characterized by the messianic age, the arrival of the Messiah, the age of fulfillment. Listen to Amos chapter 9 verse 13. It says, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the reaper will be overtaken by the plowman and the planter by the one treading grapes. New wine will drip from the mountains. Or how about Isaiah chapter 25 verse 6, which says, on this mountain... The Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, 
the best of meats and the finest of wines. It's a sign of abundance. It's a sign of God's blessing, of God's extravagance. And what Jesus is doing here by changing this water into wine is highly symbolic. Jesus is saying, he's showing who he is and why he came. He's doing this miracle and making the statement that he is the Messiah. He is the one who ushers in this messianic age. He's the savior that came to do a new thing. And you know, it's no coincidence that those jars that are used to fill, uh, filled up with water are Jewish ritual jars. Because they would use these water, they would pour the water to cleanse themselves, to purify themselves. This points back to the Old Testament and the law, the Old Covenant. But Jesus is saying, I am the New Covenant. I am the, I'm the one who washes you clean. It's not this jar of water. I am, Jesus is the one who washes you clean, who washes that sin away from your life. And he's saying, and I am a God of extravagant abundance. There's more than enough wine flowing from those jars because Jesus is a God of extravagant abundance towards his people. Do you know that he doesn't just kind of love you? He doesn't just kind of, yeah, you're okay when you're having a good day. He loves you with an extravagant love that is out of this world. We have to let that sink in. He loves you so much. That's why, that's why he gave his life for us. Because of how much he loves us. But John calls this the first miraculous sign. And the reason he calls that is because a sign points to a deeper meaning. And here Jesus is pointing to the fact that he has come to fulfill the Old Testament prophets. That he is the Messiah, the one who brings salvation to the world. Remember that John in his gospel, um, he has a very specific purpose with documenting the seven signs he describes. They're not by accident. John had a very specific purpose. They're designed to reveal Jesus' identity as the Messiah. And in fact, at the end of John's gospel in chapter 20, verses 30 to 31, listen to what John writes. He makes it really obvious. He says, now Jesus also performed many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these things are recorded in order that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. There you go. It's what these signs are all about, that you may believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you may have life in his name. So what can we, what can we take away from this scripture this morning? What's the, what's the doggy bag we can take away from this wedding? Well, firstly, remember that there is our timetable and then there is God's timetable. And they're not often in line. Sometimes they are. That's when things feel great, right? But often God is working on a different timetable. Don't be discouraged when that happens. Don't be discouraged by unanswered prayer and apparent lack of action by God. Remember what Isaiah writes in chapter 55, verses 8 to 9. 
God says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than yours and my thoughts than your thoughts. I have to understand that about God. We don't, we're not designed or created to understand everything about God. If we had God all figured out, he wouldn't be God. But instead, seek him all the harder. Let your faith grow as you come to understand that God's timing is best. Secondly, do what Jesus tells you. Do what he tells you. The four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they are full of teaching and instruction from Jesus. Live it out. Follow his teaching in your lives. If you don't know where to start, look at, look at the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount. Go to Matthew chapter 5 and the next couple of chapters. Read through those. Full of rich teaching from Jesus about how we should live our lives. Thirdly, remember that we have a God who is extravagant in his love for us. Whose, whose mercies and grace, they overflow for us so much so that he gave his life for us. That we might be reunited with him. So that our broken relationship with God might be restored. That's how much he loves us. He's saying, I can't bear for you to be separated from me and the Father. It's not how I originally created you. We were supposed to be in relationship together. I know it's the way that you will be most content and most satisfied in life is when we are reunited and we are in relationship. So Jesus said, I'm not going to let that stand. I'm going to go to the cross. I will take away the sin of the world. And I will tear down the curtain that separates you and I from God. And we shall be reunited. That's how much I love you. What that means, being reunited with God, means that one day we are going to be invited to another wedding. It's going to be the ultimate wedding, the ultimate banquet, the ultimate celebration where the finest wine will never run out. It's the wedding supper of the Lamb. Let me just finish for you by reading from the book of Revelation, chapter seven, uh, sorry, 19, verses 7 to 9. It says, And I heard something like the sound of a great crowd and something like the sound of many waters, and something like the sound of powerful thunder saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord God, the all-powerful, reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him the glory because the wedding celebration of the Lamb has come and his bride has prepared herself. And it has been granted to her that she be dressed in bright, clean, fine linen, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And he said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are invited to the banquet of the wedding celebration of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. That is a celebration that we are all invited to. All of us. And all you need for that invitation is to accept and know Jesus as our Lord and Savior. Let's pray.